Jesus performed miracles so that people would believe that he was sent from heaven by his Father. Jesus Christ, Creator, has all authority over all creation, including authority over life and death. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you open your Bibles to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, we're going to finish uh, this chapter today. As you know, we've been in the study of the Gospel of John for the last, probably since November. Uh, John wrote his Gospel to do two things, to demonstrate that Jesus is God in human flesh, and then to persuade his readers to place their faith in Christ so that they might experience eternal life. That's the point of the Gospel. We are now halfway through the book, but we're in the last week of Jesus' life. So the first 11 chapters really take three years, and the last 10 chapters take seven days. So the whole focus of John's gospel really is the the crucifixion of our Lord and salvation for us. So Jesus has been claiming to be God, come in human flesh now for three years. And he's provided a great deal of evidence to document that claim through hundreds and hundreds of public miracles, healing, uh, power over nature, power over demons, etc. In his gospel, John chooses seven of those miracles, seven signs that he uses to demonstrate that Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life, and then he fed 5,000 by multiplying loaves and fishes. He claimed to be the light of the world, and within an hour he opened the eyes of a man born blind. So Jesus' words, claiming to be God in the flesh, are documented by his works. Now, by this time, the Jewish religious leaders have been trying to kill Jesus for about three years, but he always eludes their grasp because his time to go to the cross is not yet. We are now at the last roughly couple of weeks of his life. It's three months before Passover, which takes place in our March-April Every year, Passover takes place in March-April. To avoid being murdered before the time to go to the cross, Jesus is going to travel 20 miles east of Jerusalem. And he's there, um, Jericho, east of Jericho, north of the Dead Sea on the far side of the river. It's about 20 miles east of Jerusalem. And while he's there, he's given a message that his good friend Lazarus is sick. And he loves Lazarus and brothers and sisters, Mary and Martha. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are adult children whose parents are probably dead. They live in the little village of Bethany, which means house of poverty. Uh, And Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Jesus are good friends. He spends a lot of time there. It's kind of his home away from home. And he loves them dearly. John tells us that on three different occasions. You would think if you love someone and they have a great need, you would go to them immediately and try and meet that need. Counterintuitively, Jesus, when he gets the news that Lazarus is sick, stays two more days east of the Jordan River. 
which doesn't make sense until you find out what Jesus has in mind. Then, at day number four, he starts walking up the Jericho Road to Jerusalem. Now, it's 18 miles from Bethany to Bethany. There's a Bethany on the east side of the river, a Bethany at the top of the Mount of Olives. It's about a 3,800-foot elevation increase. Remember, the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is about 2557 feet above sea level, close to that. So almost 3,800 feet, you're walking uphill. We've walked on that road. I haven't walked the whole way, but we've walked part of that when we were sightseeing. It's not an easy road. So Jesus arrives in Bethany. Lazarus has been dead four days. We talked about this last week. And it seems as though when you read John's Gospel that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are pretty prominent people in that village because a great many Jews from Jerusalem have walked up the Mount of Olives, about two miles, to help this funeral, um, we would call it celebration of life, although they didn't call it at that point in time, but to mourn Lazarus' death. So Lazarus has died. Jesus finally comes to the village where he is in Bethany. He's been dead four days. And Sister Martha comes out to have a little conversation with Jesus and basically says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As we said last week in New York, she probably said, you're late, right? Where were you when we needed you? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. We know that you can heal. And Jesus responds to her with one of his great I am statements, the fifth of seven. He says, Martha, I am what? The resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives in, who everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, Martha is a pretty take charge lady. She is an activist, and she is persuaded by logic, and she's persuaded by truth. So Jesus has a conversation with her about who he is, and she's comforted by the truth. As a matter of fact, she knows more truth than many of the disciples do at this point in time. She makes one of the great statements in the New Testament about who Jesus is. Here's what she says. Yes, Lord, I have believed three things. You are the Christ, that's the Messiah. You are the Son of God, and you are the one who comes into the world. Now, Messiah was promised in the Old Testament for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's over 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Jesus has fulfilled quite a number of them already at that point. So she knows he's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. She says, you have the very nature of God himself. You are God in human form. Of course, Jesus has been claiming that for three years, and he's been documenting that he is God with the miracles that he's performed. Number three, she says, God sent you into the world as the one and only way to him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus has an exclusive way. He is the exclusive way to a relationship with God. This statement she makes in the face of great grief, her brother has just died, is one of the clearest in the Gospels. That's why John records it. So we're going to pick up the narrative today. That's what we talked about last week in summary. In verse 28 of chapter 11, when Martha had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Here's the principle. And it's a very comforting principle. We can bring our struggles to Jesus because he is a compassionate Savior who understands our suffering and sorrow. Let me say that again. We can bring our struggles to Jesus because he is a compassionate Savior who understands our struggles and our sorrows. So Jesus is talking to Martha, the oldest sister. You know how old the sisters are. And he says, tell Mary that I'm here. So Martha goes into the house, which is filled with mourners. They're all weeping. And, and he says, she says, Jesus is here and he wants to see you. She doesn't want the large crowd to follow Mary out because Mary wants a private conversation with the Lord. And Martha calls Jesus the teacher, which is rather interesting because rabbis in that era did not teach women. They just didn't do it. Jesus had no such problem. He taught women all the time. So Jesus is the only one who can teach sinful human beings how to have an eternal life relationship with holy God. That's why he came. So Jesus is outside this little village of Bethany. Mary leaves the house to go see Jesus, and her fellow mourners, her fair friends who are in the house weeping with her, they follow her out because they think she's going to the tomb, and she's going to weep there. So they, you know, you console by being with someone. So it has the effect of getting everybody out of the house. So they are witnesses now to the upcoming miracle that Jesus is going to perform shortly. I want you to notice something. Martha has a conversation with Jesus standing face to face. She's talking to him. Mary is so overcome with sorrow, she falls at his feet, weeping. She's just sobbing. Jesus comforted Martha with truth. Jesus comforts Mary by weeping with her. And sometimes, you know, I want to say this carefully. We really don't know how to comfort people well. You know, if you haven't had your heart broken and someone is in a great deal of pain, what we want to do is we want to say something that will take the pain away. Right? I mean, that's our motives. We want our friends to not hurt. With all due respect, they're going to hurt. And your words are not going to stop the pain. Sometimes the most important thing you can do is give them a hug, love them, and say, I'm sorry. I'm praying for you. Your words, no matter how much you love them, are not going to fix it. That's okay. That's not your and my job to fix it. Our job is to love them and be with them. Presence is powerful. Powerful. Many of you are far, far more effective than you think you are in that case just because you're there. Jesus interacts with us based on what we need. He knew Martha needed truth. He knew Mary needed love and, 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 and just empathy. Every time we see Mary with Jesus, she's at his feet. We see her three times in Scripture. Luke 10, 39 records the first time we meet the family. Jesus is there having a dinner. They're 
he's the guest of honor, they entertain him, you know, uh, because he's there for the feeding of a meal. Martha's preparing the meal, and Mary's what? Sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus talk. Here we see her at Jesus' feet, weeping with sorrow over her brother's death. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look in chapter 12. She is anointing Jesus' feet with ointment, drying his feet with her hair as an act of worship. She obviously loved Jesus a great deal. What we can conclude is that Lazarus was very well liked because there's a great crowd that has come the two miles up the hill from Jerusalem to mourn with the family, great crowd of Jews. When Jesus saw the grief of Lazarus' family and friends, he responded with empathy and sorrow. Now, you need to understand that Jewish funerals were not controlled affairs. They were not stiff upper lip. This was not British. Um, they were filled with very loud, noisy weeping. The family often hired professional mourners, usually women. There was a job description. You mourned at funerals. Even poor families would hire at least one professional mourner and two flute players. So they would lead you in mourning. That's what they got paid to do. A Jewish funeral was very loud, very noisy, almost unrestrained wailing. You would go there and go, whoa, Prozac, something. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it would feel almost out of control because the, the grief and the sorrow of the loss was expressed. And Jesus does not rebuke them for that. He doesn't tell them to cheer up. Don't worry about it. I'm going to raise Lazarus in the next 10 minutes. Just calm down. He doesn't do that. He weeps with them over the loss of their friend, over the loss of his friend. He sorrows for Mary and Martha. He's a very compassionate God. He's a very compassionate high priest. Remember, a high priest is a mediator. A high priest is someone who goes between God and man and, and humanity, and that is who Jesus Christ is. Hebrews 4.15 describes the high priest we have, Jesus Christ. It says, quote, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. So like Mary, the author of Hebrews tells us, when you have a problem, when you have brokenness, when you have troubles or trials and suffering and sorrows, bring it to the Lord. Draw near to the Lord. Come to him with it. Jesus is fully man, which means he can sympathize with our pains and our struggles and our trials because he went through them himself. So we, he, we can trust him with our problems. The good news is Jesus is not only man, he's fully God, so he can actually do something about it. You know, if Jesus was just a man, a compassionate friend, you'd say, well, I can tell him my trials and troubles, but he's got no power to change anything. Well, he's also God, which means he has the power to do something about our problems. It's so comforting when you realize, what did, what did Jesus tell Martha to tell Mary? Tell Mary the teacher is here and is calling for you. The Lord wants a relationship with us. Jesus wants us to bring our problems to him. He wants to help us carry those troubles, right? There's an old gospel chorus that says, I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear my burdens alone. You were not designed to bear your burdens alone. You were designed to bear them and have Jesus help. And sometimes the burdens in our life are such that we can't carry them. And Jesus carries us through those. Some of you have been through deep waters. You understand what I'm talking about. 
Whatever your circumstances are, whatever the struggle is, bring it to the Lord because he says, I'm going to help you. I want to help you. The text is very graphic here. The text says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit or groaned in the spirit. He was troubled. Now, the word groan means a large, a loud, inarticulate sound. It, it almost indicates anger or indignation. The, the literal translation of it is the snorting of a horse as they're preparing for battle. That's the noise that Jesus made. He's filled with sorrow and almost indignation. The picture is that he's gearing up for the conflict with Satan's sin and death because he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in only moments. He was angry over the tyranny of Satan. He was angry over the fact that sin causes death. Most of us believe that death is normal. Death was never created normal. Death came as a result of sin in the Garden of Eden when God created us. We were made to live eternally. That's why when we go to a funeral and we face death, it feels so foreign. It feels so ugly because it is. It is. It's the last enemy, Scripture says. It says not only did he groan in the Spirit, it says he was troubled. And this is a word of a pool of water that's agitated. Uh, I couldn't help but think of the word picture. When you were children, you had these top loader washers, you know, and they had agitators in them. And when the thing's going, the surface of the water is agitated, well, that's what Jesus' spirit was like. It was agitated. And he was agitated over the fact that sin had caused the death for the human race. One by one by one, we are all going to die as a result of that. And very soon, within a matter of weeks, he was going to go to the cross to pay the penalty for the sin that, that uh, our sins had created. He was going to conquer sin and death on the cross. He was also... I think, upset over the unbelief of the crowd. Within about 10 minutes or thereabouts, he was going to resuscitate Lazarus from the dead, which is demonstrable proof that he is God. Only God has a control over life and death. And he already knew that there were going to be many in this crowd who would not believe despite the evidence. He knew that. And he knew that no matter how overwhelmingly the evidence was, some in this crowd would refuse to believe in him. Now, when it says Jesus wept, it, it's the word picture of silently bursting into tears. Contrast this with the crowd that is weeping and wailing and making a great deal of noise. Jesus does not make noise here. He bursts into tears. He weeps over the sin that has caused death. He weeps with us in our suffering. Isaiah 53, talking about the Messiah, says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was weeping over the consequences of human sin. Next week, we'll take a look at the triumphal entry when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, being acknowledged as the sovereign ruler over Israel, and it says that he wept over the city while on the donkey because he knew that in less than a week he was going to be crucified by the same crowd. He was weeping over their sin, and he knew that Rome was going to come in 70 AD and destroy the city. He also, think about this, he also might be weeping for Lazarus. They say, why would he weep for Lazarus? He's going to raise him from the dead. If you were in heaven, would you want to be raised from the dead and brought back here? Seriously? 
If you got on your iPhone and it could connect with heaven and you talked to your loved ones in heaven, they would tell you, forget about it. You get up here. I'm not coming back to that cesspool. You have no clue how perfect it is up here. No sin, no suffering, no selfishness, no politics. We have a king who runs everything and it's perfect. Why would you want to come back? As a matter of fact, a lot of the ancient paintings of Lazarus coming out of the tomb show him very unhappy. <laughs> He's been in glory, and what does he see? A bunch of sinners, right? So Jesus knew that because Jesus came from heaven, so he knew what Lazarus was going to leave behind. See, we think earth is the center of everything. We think, man, this earth, this is... Where... No, we need to see from heaven's perspective and then we'll have correct perspective. Verse 36. So the Jews were saying, this is the crowd of mourners, very large crowd, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So this crowd, they're talking like Mary and Martha. Remember that Mary and Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And they're going, well, if he was here, maybe he could have kept Lazarus from dying, right? They all agreed that Jesus loved Lazarus, right? And he, if he was on side, of course he would have prevented them from dying. I mean, if he opened blind eyes six months ago, maybe he could prevent death. Some of them, I read a commentator that said, well, Jesus was really crying because he was frustrated he couldn't do anything about his friend's death. Well, we're going to find out in about five minutes that that's not a good diagnosis, Right? What is utterly counterintuitive from a human perspective is Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so much that he waited for Lazarus to die before he showed up so that he could raise him from the dead and give them a greater miracle than if he had prevented his death in the first place. That was to strengthen their faith. Can you imagine the difference between not dying versus dying and being raised from the dead. What would that do to your faith? Well, that was part of the reason he did it. Verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, says to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say that if you believe you will see the glory of God. Here's the principle. Those who believe in Jesus will see God's glory through Jesus' words and his works. Those who believe in Jesus will see God's glory through Jesus' words and works. I want to unpack the logistics of this. A Jewish tomb in that era, uh, the bulk of tombs uh, were stone sepulchers, right? Uh, they had a lot of mountains around Jerusalem, and it was all limestone, so they would often use limestone caves. Water percolates through limestone pretty quickly and creates caves. Or they would literally dig into the side of a mountain, dig right into the side of a hillside, and build a, a tomb uh, and excavate. When the room was large enough, they would level the, the uh, ground, and they would grade it to make a shallow uh, descent. So you walked kind of down and into the tomb, slightly downhill. Then they would cut out shelves on the wall, or they would make stone tables to make room for additional family members. The average family tomb could hold eight people. 
So eight bodies at, at a given time. Was, they, they didn't do this individually. This was corporate family would do this. And they would take a large round rock shaped somewhat like a wheel, and they rolled it on a stone track in front of the opening to prevent animals uh, and grave robbers from entering the tomb. Now, the stones were not small. They were two to three tons. So you're talking four to 6,000 pounds size of a truck. It took a number of people with levers to open the tomb. This was not, well, let's roll away this styrofoam door. You know, it was, it was two to three tons, so it was sealed. And Jesus commands them to roll away the stone. And Martha, the practical older sister, she thinks Jesus wants to look at the body. You know, like we have open casket funerals, right? So she thinks Jesus wants to open the body. And she's very concerned that the stench after four days will be overpowering. And she's right. It would be. Death and decomposition are pretty ugly affairs. Um, in warm climates, Mediterranean climates, a body begins to deteriorate immediately upon death. So burial took place the same day. You didn't have any embalming fluid. You didn't wait two weeks or even a week. If you died, you were in the ground that day. So until probably the end of the 19th century, until we had medical advances, one of the great fears always was being buried before you were really dead, right? So they used to have these cords in, in, the, in the caskets where you could ring bells and stuff like that. That's no joke. We have a lot of records of claw marks inside caskets where people got buried before they were dead. They thought they were dead. Decomposition was such they had to bury them right away. Unfortunately, they tragically, they buried some folks that were not yet dead. So they, they laid the body on a sheet of linen. They put the body on a stone table, a sheet of linen, which was probably two and a half times the length of the person. So if they were six foot tall, it was pretty tall back in the day, they probably had 15 feet of linen. And they would drape it underneath the body and then bring it over the top of the head and bring it all the way down to the feet. And they would uh, drape that. Uh, they would tie the arms to the body, generally with linen straps, and they would tie the ankles together with linen straps as well. And then they would bind the face with another cloth. And they would sprinkle aromatic spices into the linen cloth, not for preservation, but for odor control. So about 12 months after death, the flesh had all decomposed and all that was left was the skeleton. The family then would put the bones in an ossuary, which is a funerary stone chamber, and they would hold the bones in the back of the tomb. Now we look at this and we say, wow, these people lived with death every day and we don't. We have made death very antiseptic. Someone is sick and they die and they disappear. We have no clue. We're not involved in that process. These folks were involved in the process. The family was the one who wrapped the body, right? You were there on site and saw this, and you were very well acquainted with death because you'd probably been involved from family members. It wasn't this antiseptic type of arrangement. The tombs were located away from dwelling places because physical contact with a dead body would make you ceremonially unclean. According to Mosaic law, you were not allowed to touch a dead body. If you did, you were unclean for about a week. And they often took the outsides of tombs and they whitewashed them. So you wouldn't, you know, when you're going for a hike in the hills, you didn't want to touch a tomb because that could make you unclean too. So they whitewashed the, the tombs to make them very visible so you wouldn't accidentally run into one. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you look at the mountainside surrounding and they're Look, there's just pockmarked, if you will, with hundreds and hundreds and thousands of tombs all around Jerusalem. 
So Martha is very practical, and she says, in the King James, it says, he stinketh. You know, that's the King James. Well, yes, he would. And, and he reminds her, he responds to her logic by saying, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Right? He promised her that a couple of verses before. And the message is clear. The crowd that's watching, the unbelieving crowd, is only going to see the physical miracle. That's all they're going to see. They're going to see a dead guy come to life. The believers in Jesus will see the real significance, which is far more than just the dead coming back to life. It's seeing the glory of God through the miracle, right? Through the miracle. Anytime God acts, it's a display of his glory. When God answers your prayers, he is revealing something of himself to you. Whether God says yes, no, or wait when you pray to him, he's revealing his character to you by his answer. And of course we say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. Yes, he did. He just said no. See, we go, well, the only time I count an answer is when he says yes. No, our Heavenly Father loves us. He knows when we're not supposed to have things. Like your two-year-old grandchildren, there's times you say no. Well, there's a lot of times I'm less mature than a two-year-old grandchild when it comes to my relationship with my Heavenly Father. I'm going, Lord, please, blah, 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 please, blah, blah, blah. And he says, no, I know what's best for you. And I've got a lot of scar tissue from pursuing it anyway, right? So when God says yes or no or wait, he's revealing something who, about who he is. What kind of God hears and answers prayers? A compassionate God? A caring God? An involved God? A loving God? A powerful God? See, the answer to your prayer is not the most important thing. If all you want is an answer to your prayer, then God's just Santa Claus, right? God's a genie. The point is, knowing the God behind the answer, whatever it is, is the issue. Jesus said, you're going to see the glory of God. You're going to see the character of God. Believers in Christ come to know God through faith in Jesus. So when you make a request, when you pray today, and you'll have a prayer request, oh God, please, oh God, do this, whatever it happens to be, ask him to show you who he is. Open your eyes to the God you're talking to. See the glory, not just the answer. Verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Here's the principle. Jesus performed miracles so that people would believe that he was sent from heaven by his Father. Jesus performed miracles so that people would believe that he was sent from heaven by his Father. Now, just so you know, if Mary and Martha did not give permission, they wouldn't have opened the tomb. So obviously they believed Jesus, they gave permission to remove the stone. It's interesting that when Jesus does miracles, he often involves people, right? Remember when he fed the 20,000 at the Sea of Galilee, 5,000 plus women and children, right? Who passed out the food? The disciples, he has involved human beings in the process. When he, you know, you look at this and you say, well, how come he didn't just snap his fingers and pull Lazarus out of the tomb, right through the rock, and, and show him? How come he had people physically remove the tombstone? God always involves people in the process if they have work to do. 
God only does what God can do. But God calls you and I to do what we can do. See, it's not just divine sovereignty. There's human involvement, human responsibility. So he tells the crowd, spectators, take away the stone. Well, that probably took some time. I can only imagine them grabbing levers and trying to pull the stone away. And everybody's wondering, what's going to happen? And Jesus then prays. And he doesn't make a request of God. He gives thanks to God. He says, Lord, I'm thankful that you always hear me and you answer my prayers. Well, what prayers? Well, we're pretty sure, probably, that God told Jesus a couple of days ago that Lazarus was going to die. Because remember, he died before Jesus showed up and Jesus knew it because he told the disciples, he's dead. We're going to go now and see him. And the father told the son what the plan was. You're going to raise him from the dead. That's the prayer. Jesus is now going to carry that out. But Jesus spoke out loud so that the watching crowd would know that God the Father had sent him, and he does nothing without his Father's approval. Jesus has been saying that for three years. I don't act on my own. I act according to the dictates of my heavenly Father who tells me what to do and when to do it. So the whole point of this miraculous resuscitation from the dead is to give evidence of Jesus' divine glory so that people would believe in him. Now, this happened in the Old Testament. Elijah who is um, praying in 1 Kings 18, 37, and he says, God, answer me. Answer my prayer. And then he tells God, here's why I'm asking you to answer my prayer. You know, why would God answer your prayer? Well, Elijah says, answer me so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and have turned their heart back again. Remember Israel's deep in apostasy, worshiping the Baals, involved in child sacrifice. Elijah confronts them. They build an altar. Uh, The God that answers by fire, he is God. And Elijah said, Lord, answer my prayer, not so that I get the glory, but so that you get the glory, and that the watching people know that you are God. And of course, God answers by fire from heaven and demonstrates that he alone is God, and the nation of Israel uh, turned back to the Lord. This is 800 B.C. Verse 43, when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot in wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Here's the principle. Jesus Christ, creator, has all authority over all creation, including authority over life and death. Jesus Christ, creator, has all authority over all creation, including authority over life and death. And it says he cried out with a loud shout. Now, this is in contrast to what was typical practice. Magicians and soothsayers and practitioners of the dark arts would often whisper and mutter. They'd use their incantations. They would speak in low tones. They did that because they didn't want to be accountable if it didn't happen. So no one would really know what they were saying, so they kind of kept on, they would use, you know, nonsense syllables and stuff like that to do their, quote, magic arts. Well, Jesus wanted everybody to know exactly what he was saying. And he said it with a very loud voice. They all heard, and he commanded Lazarus to come forth. This is not a suggestion. And he uses Lazarus' name to specify exactly who he wants to come forth from the grave. Augustine remarked that if Jesus did not specify Lazarus by name, he would have emptied every cemetery on earth. 
right? That would actually happen. He is the Lord of life and death. And we know that someday that will happen because everyone will be resurrected from the dead. John 5.28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Nihilism is not biblical truth. Every soul lives forever. Every soul is immortal. The location of where you live depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. You need to understand, Lazarus was not resurrected. Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to physical life, but it was the same life he had left. It was the same body he had before, and he had the curse of dying twice. How would you like to do that one? You know, not just once, but twice. It's like, I've been here one time already. I've been sick, I've died, now I get to do it again. Tradition says he lived 30 years, whatever it happened to be, but he had to die again. Now, resurrection, when Christ returns and resurrects the dead, everyone's going to be given an immortal body, a new body, right? A resurrection body, a spiritual body that can live forever in wherever your eternal residence is, with God in heaven or separated from God in hell. Both of those are eternal states. You need a body that's going to be able to survive both of those. And Jesus is going to give immortal bodies to church saints, that's us, at the rapture. Old Testament saints and tribulation saints will get their resurrection bodies when Jesus returns to earth as king. Now, no one can ignore the command of Almighty God, so Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus completely restored this decomposing body, gave it new life, eyes, heart, blood. You can go through all the bodily functions, and he restored all of those, perfect functioning. He proved his earlier claim. What was his earlier claim to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the source of life. I am the creator who gave life with the word of my mouth. I can sure restore it. And his words were validated by his works. He proved it right here. And the same crowd of mourners saw Lazarus being buried four days ago, now see him stumbling out of the tomb wrapped in burial cloths. By the way, the average funeral lasted a week, seven days of mourning and eating. Wow, that'll do something to you. This crowd not only saw with their eyes, they smelled the stench with their nose, they heard Jesus' command, and now Jesus said, go unwrap him and let him go. Now they're laying hands on him. I can only imagine what they're thinking. I'm going to this guy who stinks, and I'm unwrapping this, what was a corpse, who's now standing there. They got sensory validation that this actually is true, right? Everyone can see that Lazarus is very much alive and moving. And what you want to see is, well, tell us the rest of the story. You know, how does the crowd respond? What are Mary and Martha do? How does Lazarus, what does he say to his sisters? And the big question is, where were you, Lazarus? What was it like, right? None of that is told. That's the curtain, the curtain drops right here. What you want to get here is that this scene is an accurate picture of what happens to the sinner who trusts Jesus the Savior. Like Lazarus, all sinners are dead in trespasses and sins, unable to respond to God, right? Warren Wiersbe writes that Lazarus, like all sinners, are decaying. Lazarus was not raised by his own power. He was raised from the dead by the power of God. He had no power to raise himself. 
Sinners have no power to save themselves either. There is no self-help program that gets you into heaven. None. Only Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he raises believers out of the graveyard of sin and gives them new life. Now, as always, Jesus' words divide the Jews and divide the world into two camps. Those who believe in Jesus, those who refuse to believe in Jesus. Let's take a look at the aftermath in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe on him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Here's the principle. People who love their sin hate Jesus and reject any evidence that contradicts their position. People who love their sin hate Jesus and reject any evidence that contradicts their position. You know, you will never get in trouble talking with people about going to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. No problem. You'll be real popular if you tell them they get in just like they are now. Where you're going to get into trouble if you say, you can't get into heaven as a sinner. You need to be saved and rescued from your sin, and your sin debt needs to be paid by Jesus, and he needs to make you pure, and you go to heaven as a forgiven sinner. You don't come on your own and get in. And when you tell people they're sinners, they get upset because that harms our pride. You know, we all think, well, I'm good enough for God. I can just tell God what to do. And I'm saying, well, if somebody illegally broke into your house and decided to become a squatter in your living room and say, you know, I'm a good person. I've decided I'm going to live in your house and you're going to take care of me forever. You would say, whoa, 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 this is my house. I get to decide who stays here. Well, heaven is God's house. He gets to decide who comes in, right? And he has made a way. Jesus Christ is the way. Now, the raising of Lazarus, this was the red line. And it incited the Jewish religious leaders into taking immediate action. And they have an informal council of the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court and the Congress of Israel, both in one body. And they had two political parties in Israel like we have here. They had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the chief priests they talk about here, they're Sadducees. The Sadducee party did not believe in miracles, did not believe in angels, did not believe in the supernatural, did not believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe anything other than the first five scriptures of the Bible written by Moses. They were very religiously liberal. They were politically in bed with Rome, and they were getting filthy rich off the Jewish religious system. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were about 6,000 lay people. Many of them small business owners. They were very religiously conservative. They were self-righteous. They were proud. And they imposed on the people not only the Mosaic law, but also hundreds of their own man-made laws. So both these parties hated each other, but they hated Jesus more. So they decided they're going to get together, and we've got to kill Jesus because he is impacting the gig we've got going on now. What is most interesting is that 
Even Jesus' enemies, the ones who wanted him dead, could not deny his supernatural miracles. There were hundreds of them, and there were eyewitnesses. You would think if there was ever a group who would be able to discredit Jesus, it would be the ones that wanted him dead. They couldn't deny the miracles. There were too many eyewitnesses. Many, many of the Jews were abandoning these political religious leaders and following Jesus. So their constituency was abandoning them and following Jesus, and they loved their political positions of power and authority, and they felt Jesus was a threat, and he was. If the crowds followed Jesus, they felt that Rome would intervene militarily, and they said something very interesting. The Romans are going to take away our place and our nation. Who owns the nation? Our nation. Have you ever noticed that people in power start to think of the nation as belonging to them? Regardless of political party, if you're in power long enough, pretty soon you believe that, well, of course I should be in power. I deserve to be in power, and everybody should serve me. You've been in power long enough, that's human nature. It doesn't matter. We've seen that throughout history. This group, the Sadducees and Pharisees, love their positions of power and prestige. And when they talked about saving the nation, they're talking about saving their own skins. And their positions of power depended on Rome. The high priesthood was supposed to be a lifetime appointment, a spiritual appointment, but they treated it as a political tool. Between 37 BC and 70 AD, about 93 years, there were 31 high priests. 31. About every three years there was a new high priest. And they were all appointed by Rome, political reasons. Caiaphas is the current high priest. He served for 18 years. He was pretty arrogant and pretty, pretty rude. How would you like to be part of a, a legislative body and have somebody tell you you're an ignoramus? He says, you're stupid. You know nothing at all. I mean, this is your fellow legislators, right? He was a very cynical political operator. And he says, you know, you haven't figured out yet. Better you should execute Jesus and save your own political position. It's only one guy, right? Make him the scapegoat. You save your own political position. There was no morality here, by the way. It was all about power politics. Either the nation dies or Jesus dies. Paradoxically, if Jesus, lived, if Jesus dies, the nation lives because God used the words of this wicked man to fulfill prophecy. God had planned from eternity past what? Jesus came to earth for the express purpose of dying a substitutionary death, not just for the Jewish nation, but for the sins of the whole world. So if Jesus dies, the world can live, and everyone who believes that Jesus in Jesus will be united into his forever family called the church. Verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and from there he stayed with his disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They were seeking Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he was to report it so they might seize him. So Jesus learns that the Sanhedrin is planning his death, probably through Nicodemus. He was going to go to the cross, but not just yet. He had a date with the cross on Friday, Passover. He left Jerusalem about 15 miles north to Ephraim. We don't know how long he stayed there. Seems like a matter of weeks before he came back. Remember that Passover was a mandated feast. And you could have several hundred thousand Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem 
at this feast. And they came a week early to purify themselves for the feast, and they were speculating whether Christ was going to come back or not. Now, they doubted that he would because he was now public enemy number one. He had a warrant out for his arrest, and their plans to kill him were now public. So this gives you the great miracle that Jesus performed, the capstone miracle of his earthly ministry, documenting he was God, and as always, people cannot stay neutral with Jesus. Either you're for him or you're against him. Either you believe in him or you disbelieve him, and we see that in the Jewish nation, and we see that throughout history. Okay, let's summarize point one to review. We can bring our struggles to Jesus because he is a compassionate Savior who understands our suffering and sorrow. You were not designed to carry whatever you're carrying alone. The Lord Jesus Christ will carry that with you. Number two, those who believe in Jesus will see God's glory through Jesus' words and works. And our comment there was, don't just ask Jesus for the answer to your prayer. Ask him to show you himself. Ask him to open your eyes that you can see the glory of God through that answer, whether it's yes, no, or wait. Number three, Jesus performed miracles so that people would believe that he was sent from heaven by his Father. He just didn't make the claim. He documented the claim with verifiable evidentiary uh, miracles with hundreds of eyewitnesses. And even his enemies could not deny them. Number four, Jesus Christ, creator, has all authority over all creation, including authority over life and death. You know, people would say, this is just impossible. How can you raise somebody from the dead? Their God is pretty small. They don't have a God who created the heavens and the earth with the words of his mouth. If he can create the universe by saying, let there be light and there was light, raising a body from the dead is not a big deal. Amen. Right? Your God is too small, and that's true for most of us. Most of us pray to a very itty-bitty God. And lastly, people who love their sin hate Jesus and reject any evidence that contradicts it. No one rejects Jesus for lack of evidence. There is enormous evidence. Jesus himself said, people that reject Jesus do so because they love their sin. They don't want to give it up. And they know if they come to Christ, they're going to have to live holy lives. And they don't want to live holy lives. They love their sin, right? That's why Jesus came, to save us from ourselves and bring us to God. Thank you for your attention. Next week, Lord willing, we'll jump into chapter 12. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.